and welcome to episode five of the Hunting for Candle Lens podcast. I'm your host, Neil. Today we're going to continue my interview with Robin Frederick, a songwriter who knew Nick Drake in Aix-en-Provence in 1967. In addition, we have an audio essay from Mike Schwartz about the Futurama and Dream of Venus exhibits at the 1939 New York World's Fair. And then I'll talk until I run out of words, and then, then I'll sing. So... Up first, here is me talking to Robin Frederick for a special at KGNU. I forgot to mention it before. I believe this interview took place in 1999, possibly 1998. It sort of seems from you know, from listening to some of the music, particularly like on the first album, that he was sort of writing songs to communicate with his friends. You know, he mentions Jeremy, one of his friends, in one yes. of his songs. Yes. And I don't think there's any doubt that the songs were the way that Nick talked to people. When I knew him, he didn't... He, I don't remember Nick ever saying a single word to me during the times that we were together. He either sent uh, Jeremy uh, to ask me if I would meet him somewhere or, um, you know, if there was something he wanted to convey to me. Usually it was through Jeremy. And then when he came over to sing songs together, it would usually be late at night and he'd show up unannounced. And um, we would sit and sing and play songs for hours. But I don't believe that we ever spoke to each other. And that didn't seem odd to me at the time. It just, he was very quiet, and I accepted that he was shy and quiet, and that was who he was. And I always felt I, that I also communicated that way. That was how I expressed my feelings. And I think what Nick was figuring out in X, when we, in the south of France, where we were both living then, I think what he was figuring out was that you could express yourself especially strong emotions through songs. And I think that because he couldn't express himself any other way, that was a tremendous outlet for him. And he did use it. And he said so on the second album, on the Brighter Lighter album, on uh, Hazy Jane 2. He says, if songs were lines in a conversation, the situation would be fine. And I have no doubt that that's exactly how he regarded his songs. I think it's odd uh, that he... um, I felt like we had something of a conversation. It took place over about 25 years, but we (laughs) did that. I wrote a song for him uh, called Sandy Gray that John Martin recorded on his first album. And I'm sure Nick heard that song because he became friends with John later and uh, must have known I was the author because my name was on the album and must have found out that I knew John. And, but he would not have known the song was written for him. But he would have heard that song. And then years and years later, I heard him singing my song. So in a way, there's been a very extended <laughs> um, conversation with him in his songs. And, and his songs were, his albums were recorded that way. His voice is very intimate and very... Um, plain speaking there's he's not doing anything vocally that's at all tricky he is 
speaking plainly in his vocals and chose to do things that way. So yeah, I think that was the way Nick talked to people and told his friends and the people that he knew uh, what he was feeling, yes. Right. Uh, do you remember the last time you saw him bef- before he left for Africa? It was the last time I didn't see him, right. actually. Right. So um, the time before that wouldn't before stand that, out, really. Yeah. Um, the last time I didn't see him was when he wanted me to meet him somewhere, and he didn't show up, and then I wrote Sandy Gray because I was upset. Do you think he was just but forgetful? prior to that was a, one of the evenings that he had come over to my flat to play music, and... Um, we played, uh, it, it was late at night. I don't recall having a lot of electric lights on. I think I probably just had the, the gas fireplace on. That's what I seem to remember. Most of the times I saw Nick was dark. I don't think I ever not saw Nick in the daylight. I don't think I ever saw him in electric light, to tell you the truth. Um, it was usually late at night, and I had the fireplace on and we would sit and sing for hours and we would trade off we never sang together i never felt comfortable jumping in you know on the second chorus there and singing with nick for one thing it's phrasing even then was very strange and i was difficult to tell where he was going to start to sing and so and it was so lovely that i didn't feel like you know i wanted to listen i didn't feel like singing along and he never sang with me either he was listening and he was most interested, I remember him asking, uh, uh, most in asking me to play my songs. He wasn't particularly interested in songs I was covering, although there was one song that I was singing at that time, because I used to do it in my performance, in my set, called Get Together, that was written by um, uh, Chet Powers. And it, it's on the Tanworth and Arden bootleg. Mm-hmm. Nick does a version of it. And he certainly learned it from me, because the Youngbloods, who had a hit with it later, an international hit with it, um, that hadn't come out yet. And uh, I had learned it because it was a regional hit in San Francisco by the man who wrote the song, uh, whose stage name was Dino Valenti. And um, I knew that song from San Francisco and was singing it. I loved that song and sang it a lot. And that's on the bootleg. So... When Nick would come over, I would mostly sing original songs, but I did do some of the covers. He loved that one. He liked a Phil Oaks song that I used to sing called Changes, which I also loved very much. I still love that song. Um, but he would uh, mainly ask me to play originals. And I would sing them, and he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't ask me about them or ask me for the chords or anything like that. He was just he was listening. And then I think, in a sense, we were talking to each other. I didn't really speak much at that time either, and I expressed myself with my songs. And I certainly had a crush on Nick. I mean, it was a no-brainer. And um, I wasn't able to say that. I just sang him the songs that expressed my feelings about love and, you know, life. And he seemed to want to listen to them. Would you, um, I kind of want to give a visual picture just to people um, who aren't familiar with Nick Drake. How would you describe his appearance or his, his, uh, his dress at that um, time? Yeah. yeah. I still remember him very clearly. And there's certainly a lot of 
my life in X that I don't remember clearly. But uh, Nick was very, um, had a very powerful presence. And his friends have said that too. I was very interested to read what people say about him. So it was nice to read that other people felt the same way and, and my memories were probably as accurate as they could be. And I, what I remember was a very um, tall, very, att- very attractive, very beautiful man who was very um, self-effacing. He didn't look at you directly. He generally looked away, um, even when he wasn't singing and playing. When I, it, that was fairly typical if you were sitting playing guitar, that you would either stare at the fretboard or at the wall or whatever, you know. It was difficult to look people in the face when you're singing a song. But even when he was standing at the door, you know, wanting to come in, he was looking away. Um, But he... I never got the feeling that he was uncomfortable. He seemed quite comfortable with himself and his appearance. And he was... He wore, he dressed very simply. At that time, which was 1967, really people were beginning to just be utterly flamboyant and creative and wild in what they wore. You could wear anything. Um, It was, uh, you know, you had to dress crazy to get noticed. And Nick never wore anything except that black velvet jacket and the white shirt and the jeans that you see him wearing on the cover of Five Leaves Left. That's exactly the same clothes he was wearing in X. And that picture was probably taken, I would guess, a year later by the time they got around to taking photos for the album. So he, I think he knew what he looked good in. He didn't want to draw excessive attention to himself at all, but he very quietly did just that. Right. Um, Did you... At the time, did you keep in touch with his musical career? I mean, did you hear the albums when they were coming out? Well, I went back, when I left France, um, I went to London and I met John Martin. uh, But then I came back to California and I went back to school. And um, it just, it really didn't occur to me that the people I knew, my, my friends would have albums, except John, because John was making his first album when I met him and put my song on it. So I kept an eye out for John's albums, and I, got, I found London Conversation in the import bin here in California, and I bought that, and then I bought John's next two or three albums. And one day when I was at the Tower Records, in probably about 1974, um, I was, I'm sure, looking for John's albums, and I saw Nick's name, and I, that's how I found Five Leaves Left. But I think that at that time, uh, Nick had already died. Right. And I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about it. I bought Five Leaves Left, and I listened to it, and I was amazed. I hadn't, this was not the music that Nick was making when I knew him. And I was so thrilled that it was so good. It's wonderful to, to discover someone is so good, much better than you could have imagined that he was. And uh, it was still another couple of years before I was aware of the other two albums um, or that I was aware that he had died. And even then, when I found that out, uh, I, the only thing I found out was that he had 
uh, died and that he had been friends with John Martin and that saw the song Solid Air, which was another one of my favorite songs, uh, was written for Nick. Mm-hmm. And that was all I knew until just this about a year ago when the accumulating interest in Nick's music and his life um, spilled over into the internet and into the trade papers and articles and the book and uh, the biography and I found out then what had happened to him I, I read in in one of the things you wrote I guess for the news group that you, you definitely did think of Nick Drake as a muse definitely an inspiration oh yes um, how does that sort of come to play in, in your music that you are recording nowadays um, I I do find Nick to be a tremendously inspiring artist. I, on, a, on two different levels, um, on the most uh, basic level, he, what he did musically is astonishing to me, and it has affected my songwriting deeply. When I look at um, the, the chords that we were talking about earlier, the cluster chords right. that he uses, I was already doing that. Those are much easier to do on keyboards, which is what I write on. And I'm very attracted to those very complex, warm, dissonant, gorgeous chords, and I tend to already do a lot of that type of thing. But what he was doing with phrasing, uh, where he tends to start a musical phrase much later in the, in a, you know, the measure than any other songwriter I've ever heard, any other singer. He starts on the third beat. You know, most people start on the first beat. Blues tends to start on the second beat. Nick always starts on the third beat. And then he ends on the third beat, two or three bars later. <laughs> so he creates this very floaty, ethereal quality. Uh, the connection between the melody line he's singing and what he's playing on guitar is almost non-existent but it is there and you feel it being there but it's the strangest connection and i don't know of any other songwriter who's ever ever done this and it works so beautifully with what he's doing my songs were all i also tend to work in the vein of a very ethereal hypnotic uh, romantic all a lot of the things that he was has did and what I never did, though, what I never had tried before, was to lay those melodies way back into the chords. And I started doing that, and it immediately opened up this entire uh, kaleidoscope of possibilities in my songwriting. It was like discovering a whole new world. When you write pop songs, you tend to get stuck in the same patterns over and over. Pop songwriting is very limited has a very, very strong uh, structure that you can't go too far away from or you lose people, you lose listeners, and you want to keep people, you want to communicate with them, and you want to talk to them. So you can't go too far away from it. So what Nick had done was discover a way to stay within the structure and yet make it sound, uh, make, it, make it dance to his tune. He made it do what he needed it to do emotionally and melodically, uh, but still stayed within that very restricted structure. So he changed the way that I write, um, completely opened up 
uh, just for me, and I thank him, you know, every day for that. And then, of course, on another level, and that is the ability, the great courage that he had uh, to sing emotions, honest emotions, bare, um, soul naked. He didn't hide anything. And that's frightening, because if people don't like what you do, and people didn't like what Nick did then, they certainly didn't respond to it, they didn't get it. Um, there was so much else to get that was wonderful. I don't think that people actively disliked it, although certainly a lot of the critics did actively dislike it. Um, most people just didn't notice it. And that's, that's just, that just will destroy you. Right. If what you're saying, if you're, what you're doing and what he did was put your, your naked soul out there and all your emotions and your needs and to put them out there, you can't take them back. You know, once it's out there, it's, it's out there and you can't say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, I'm so sorry. Um, never mind, you can't do that. And he did it, and he not only did it once, he did it three times, and each time it was um, more uh, probably disappointing than the last for him. Right. So the courage to be who you are um, say, uh, expose yourself that way, which is really the heart and soul of great music. Music is raw emotion. If it isn't, then people aren't going to respond to it. It really is the deepest form of emotional communication that there is. And when you're lying emotionally, people know it. Um, and when you're telling the truth emotionally, people know that. And that, I think, is the it's the heart of why people are now beginning to discover him. Is that in our world, there is so little that is emotionally honest and compelling and deeply true that even after 30 years, this never becomes less powerful. And that, for me, has given, that's given me the courage to write more from my heart and soul than I have before. So, you know, and the fact that, of course, I still care about him, you know, that is always a good thing to have when you're a songwriter, is somebody to write songs for. Right. And uh, it's a complicated situation because he's no longer here. So that's been a source of... Um, emotions uh, that I have certainly been writing from recently. And that was part two of my interview with Robin Frederick. The last part will be posted next week. Up next, we have a piece by Mike Schwartz all about the Futurama and Dream of Venus exhibit from the 1939 New York World's Fair. Original music for this piece comes from DJ Chris Macumbadub, as well as myself.
Hello, this is Mike Schwartz, and welcome to my portion of the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm going to talk about the Futurama and the Dream of Venus exhibits at the 1939 New York World's Fair. So you are a typical American family in 1939 who have come to Flushing Meadows in Queens to view the future. It's the New York World's Fair of 1939, and the theme is Building the World of Tomorrow. With the economic hardships of the Great Depression not far behind you, you are primed and ready to be optimistic about the future. As you approach the General Motors building, which contains Norman Belgetti's highly popular Futurama exhibit, you notice a large, curved, and streamlined facade unraveling before you. You notice hundreds of eager spectators slowly inching up a large curvilinear ramp, which resembles a freeway on-ramp. You join the line and wait hours for your chance to view GM and Belgetti's vision of the future of American cities. As you enter, you sit in a row of plush armchairs moving slowly on an electric conveyor belt, which takes you through a huge model of a future America. You look down on the vast city, farm, and natural landscapes as if from an airplane. You see massive multi-lane, multi-level highways, glass-covered skyscrapers, bisected cities radiating outwards with huge green swaths of parkland between. Futuristic cars zoom along the highways, and tiny human beings walk on the pedestrian walkways. You look over mountains and valleys, across rivers spanned by massive bridges, at sleekly designed, planned townships to pastoral farmland and rolling countryside. It's much more than the eye can possibly take in at once. At 35,000 square feet, it's the biggest diorama ever constructed. According to the accompanying tour guide, the diorama consists of a half million buildings and houses, thousands of miles of multi-lane highways, more than a million trees, rivers, lakes and streams, snow-capped mountains, rich flowering countryside, industrial centers, college and resort towns, and great towering cities. The city is a futuristic landscape inspired by science fiction, massive geometric shapes, domes, obelisks, polygons with plenty of sweeping curves, and examples of streamlined Art Deco architecture, which would nowadays be considered retro-futurist. All glass, chromium, and steel, and with spotlessly shining white walls. The countryside is a pastoral landscape. Even as the city you see is an idealized technological utopia, the countryside is a dream of an unspoiled agrarian past. Night falls, and eventually the sun rises again as you wind your way around the one-eighth of a mile of miniature landscape. A narrator's voice soothingly issues out of a sound box in your chair, describing what you see before you. Near the end, you are taken over a large-scale, larger-scale intersection with elevated walkways and highway underpasses. And at the very end, you are deposited into a full-scale version of this same intersection, experiencing the sudden shock of seeming to enter the diorama itself, with the same vehicular passages on the ground and wide pedestrian overpasses above. As you leave, you are given a button that says, I have seen the future. What you have seen is the streamlined, technocratic, and optimistic future designed by Norman Belgetti's for the New York World's Fair of 1939. According to the exhibit, the future was 20, 21 years away in 1960. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fairgrounds, far from GM's Futurama exhibit in the fair's transportation zone, hidden away in the massive amusement zone, stands another attraction drawing in the crowds. 
You approach the small pink and white stuccoed building and you find that you can't look away. As you approach, you see the name on the side of the building, The Dream of Venus, designed by the famed surrealist Salvador Dali. The idiosyncratic building draws you in. You've seen many other strange buildings at the fair, from the Trilon and Perisphere, the ball and pyramid structures, to buildings shaped like pickles, cash registers, and airplanes. But you've not seen anything like this. The building consists of arms and legs and other appendages growing out of the facade. Niches, protuberances, tentacles, letters, and human bodies take shape before your eyes. Giant images of Botticelli's Venus and Mona Lisa look down on you. Other figures, naked with long necks and wings, writhe up the side of the building. The building seems to be alive, and in fact, on top of a platform, actual women in swimsuits sitting in beach chairs attempt to lure you in with fishing poles. They gesture for you to enter between two large, shapely female legs. You get your ticket from a large fish head that sits directly between the legs. It only costs a quarter, which you poke through one of the fish's eyes, avoiding the sharp teeth as you take your ticket. Upon entering, you first come to a chamber filled with water. Inside a huge tank is a randomly appointed den with furniture, paintings, and plants, all floating about. Phone receivers float free of their handsets. A piano is open and ready to play, except the keys are painted onto a woman's torso, and a fire burns in the fireplace. Half-naked women dressed in strange revealing costumes cut to reveal bare breasts swim around occasionally stopping to milk a mummified, a mummified cow, or to play the human piano, or to answer a phone or type on a nearby typewriter. Two figures stand nearby, a male torso made up of ping-pong paddles, and another made of large wooden chain links. A Salvador Dali backdrop portrays, de portrays desertscapes with statues, fountains, and weird land and aquatic creatures, while Mount Vesuvius erupts nearby. The next chamber is dry and contains a sleeping girl, a reclining Venus on a 30-foot-long bed. An audio track plays Venus's dreams. In the fever of love, I lie, I lie upon my Arden's bed, a bed eternally long, and I dream of burning dreams, the longest dreams ever dreamed without beginning and without end. Enter the shell of my house, and you will see my dreams. Two other women stand nearby. One has a head made of a bouquet of flowers. At the edge of the bed is a man's torso, but inside his chest cavity is a birdcage with two live birds. Through a corridor and onto the next gallery, you come across a dizzying array of pictures and tableau. A male mannequin stands nearby with a leopard's head and shot glasses sprouting out of his body. There are straws sprouting out of their glasses. Showgirls in exotic costumes point the way forward. Near-naked women wander about in garlands of ivy with strange headdresses. Another Dali landscape, this one with his famous melting pocket watches, roaming giraffes and flames, and tiny human figures running into the distance. Into the, in the next chamber is a taxicab that is raining on the inside. Naked ladies sit on the roof and hood, and Christopher Columbus sits in the back seat, with another bathing beauty as his chauffeur. Finally, you are deposited into a gallery of surrealist works left over from the Paris 1938 International Surrealist Exhibition, containing works by Dali, Magritte, and Duchamp. These two very different exhibits actually occupied the same world. Norman Belgetti's Futurama exhibit at the GM Pavilion in the Transportation Zone and Salvador Dali's Dream of Venus exhibit, exhibit in the Amusement Zone 
both featured at the 1939 and 1940 New York World's Fair. The fair's opening slogan was the dawn of a new day, and its theme was the building of the world of tomorrow. It was held in New York's Flushing Meadows, a swampy area in a borough of Queens formerly used as a large dumping ground. As in previous fairs, notably the 1893 Chicago World's Fair in which electricity made its debut, the New York World's Fair contained a distinctly American combination of technological innovation and futuristic design with the carnivalesque and popular entertainments of American burlesque. At the center of the fairgrounds were two grand hollow Art Deco monuments, the Trilon and the Perisphere, abstract forms that represented a clean modernistic future. Inside the Perisphere was a diorama called Democracy, a utopian city of the future. Other technology pavilions featured innovations in telecommunications, including Bell Labs' popular keyboard-driven speech synthesizer known as the Voter, an early prototype of the vocoder, lighting, GE introduced the fluorescent light at the fair, and many other more gimmicky technologies, such as Westinghouse's seven-foot-tall humanoid robot, Electro. In the midst of this wishful technology, in the transportation zone, was GM's Futurama exhibit. Off to the side and outside of the fairgrounds proper was the amusement zone, larger than all the other zones combined. In the amusement zone were such popular attractions as Billy Rose's Aquacade, the Arctic Girl's Tomb of Ice, the Midget Auto Race, Frank Buck's Jungle Land, and in the middle of this was Salvador Dali's Dream of Venus. Futurama and the Dream of Venus presented very different and clearly contrasting images of the world. One was technological and utopian, clean and modernist, and focused on the future, while the other was dreamlike and inspired, erotic and nightmarish, and focused inward on the human psyche. What did these contrasting visions mean to Americans of 1939 who were just beginning to recover from the Great Depression? What did they mean to a world that was just about to enter the bloodiest, most cataclysmic war in history? And what do they mean today to Americans in 2013? Everything about the Futurama experience was well orchestrated and choreographed. The audio, the video, the ride through the diorama. Every single one of the half million individually designed buildings, million trees representing 13 different species, and 50,000 automobiles were precisely placed. Visitors could take in a sweeping landscape of bustling cities, progressive farms, orchards with fruit trees, hydroelectric dams, power plants, water treatment plants, resorts, religious retreats, amusement parks, and airports in wild natural areas. The most prominent feature, as you would expect from an exhibit sponsored by General Motors, was the motorway of the future. Seven lanes of traffic in either direction, radio speed-controlled cars in enclosed lanes, remote-controlled bridges and tunnels. All of this was designed to move people faster to their destinations. Futurama exemplified many key ideas popular in the 30s. The rise of urbanism and suburbanism, the promise of technology to make life better for all, and the bringing together of pastoral agrarian America with the urban industrial America. All of this in the interest of renewing Americans' faith in corporations after the Depression. The Dream of Venus, on the other hand, provided a counterpoint to this coldly rational vision of the world. The Dream of Venus was both disorienting and discomforting, but also sensually pleasing and stimulating. It was designed to liberate human emotions and creativity rather than pocketbooks. 
Dali was not selling a product, but an idea that all experience, the extreme as much as the moderate, the taboo as much as the conventional, should be embraced, and that art and love and fear of death and the cosmos were the drivers of mankind, not technological progress. The Dream of Venus was, for many American fairgoers, their first introduction to surrealism. Although many were confused and perplexed and some were disturbed and offended, most were intrigued. The addition, addition of the burlesque ensured that this would be a surrealism for the masses, a combination of avant-garde art, psychoanalysis, and showgirls. It seemed to be out of step with the theme of building a world of tomorrow, but in step with the ideas of Freud and psychoanalysis. How did these vastly different exhibits come to occupy the same fairgrounds? Norman Valgetes was one of the century's leading futurists, but he started as a stage designer who was a bit of a wonderkind, designing all the sets, scenery, costumes, and lighting, and fusing theater and architecture from massive theatrical spectacles in plays such as Max, Max Reinhardt's The Miracle, where he made the century theater into a gothic cathedral. After spending some time in Hollywood, he became an influential architect and industrialist designer who, along with Raymond Lowy, Henry Dreyfus, and Russell Wright, created the concept of streamlining, turning vehicles, telephones, silverware, and buildings into sleek, beautiful objects. In 1937, Balgetti's designed an ad campaign for Shell called Shell Oil City of Tomorrow, which emphasized urban decentralization through overpasses with ramps, separate residential business and industrial areas with large green spaces in between, and the routing of through traffic around city center, all ideas that he would recycle for his next commission, the Futurama exhibit. When the Dream of Venus opened, surrealism was not a new movement, having grown out of Dada a decade before, with theorist André Breton as its self-designated leader. Dali had just been featured in a popular 1939 exhibition at the Julian Levy Gallery in New York. Julian Levy was an influential New York art dealer who had been involved in the Exposition Internationale du Surrealism in Paris, designed by Marcel Duchamp in 1938. He and a de dealer named Ian Woodner originally conceived the idea for an exhibition of surrealist art at the World's Fair. Salvador Dali was the perfect artist to help bring this project to fruition. He had brought surrealism to the masses the previous year when he was commissioned to design the de department store windows of Bonwit Teller. Despite the outrage that followed Dali's provocative window displays with their junk and cobwebs, and Dali had conquered America and was now the most famous surrealist artist in the world. Both exhibits were among the most popular attractions at the fair. Both celebrated freedom, egalitarianism, and dreams, albeit in different ways. Futurama celebrated the freedom of, and liberation of travel, movement, and efficiency. The Dream of Venus celebrated the freedom and release of unconscious urges. While Futurama featured the cars and highways of the future that would drive us forward, the Dream of Venus featured the primal urges that drove us forward in our everyday waking and dream lives. Both exhibits were collaborative and egalitarian. Although Balgetti's was the principal designer of Futurama, it was openly influenced and informed by many, many other visionary designers and architects. Le Corbusier's Radiant City of 1924 imagined an ideal city defined by towering skyscrapers widely spaced apart with vast green belts and broad automobile thoroughfares. Frank Lloyd Wright's Broad Acre City project of the 1930s contained self-sufficient farming communities and interconnected highways. 
and Robert Moses, who hoped to turn the grounds of Flushing Meadows into a huge park after the fair ended, had designed 14-lane superhighways. Futurama also owed a strong debt to Art Deco, including architecture by Le Corbusier and Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. Dali's dream of Venus and surrealism in general was also an egalitarian art movement. Dali's principal collaborator was his wife Gala, who was such a close collaborator that he used to sign their names together as Gala Salvador Dali. And like the exquisite corpse drawings that the surrealists would start and pass around, the Dream of Venus contained ideas from many other artists in what was more a case of a communal art than blatant theft. The Man with the Birdcage Torso was directly inspired by René Magritte's The Therapeutist. The gramophone with a hand for a horn and a breast for a platter is a replica of a piece by Oscar Dominguez. Another figure made up of an umbrella, pots and pans, and piano legs is borrowed directly from a collage made by a number of surrealists. Other pieces evoked Max Ernst and Marcel Duchamp, and Coco Chanel designed the costumes. Despite these superficial similarities, the exhibits posed a strong contrast to each other. The contrast is between logical and efficient rationality and inspired and joyous insanity. While Belgetti's had utter faith in technology, Dali was a technophobe. In Belgetti's utopia, everything was streamlined, planned, and on time, while Dali only saw juxtapositions and happy accidents, objects removed from their original context to reveal deeper meanings. Belgetti's city was ruled by remote control, which would keep everything on time, while Dali presented a riposte to this notion in the form of his melting clocks. The two men had different ideas about the place of human beings in the world. Futurama presented a world where humans were dwarfed by their surroundings and isolated from each other by cars and highways, a world of individual autonomy best represented by commuters enclosed in their single-occupancy bubble cars. Although city dwellers crowd the pedestrian thoroughfares, they do not stop to talk to each other or even acknowledge each other. The Dream of Venus had crowds of people funneled into a tight, warm space, literally rubbing shoulders with each other in the tiny exhibition space, which was a fraction of the size of Futurama. Visitors would suddenly come face-to-face -face with semi-nude women dressed in exotic costumes, or confront grotesquely decorated mannequins and frightening visions. In contrast to Belgetti's sprawling city, the backdrops of the Dream of Venus figured desert landscapes, which Dali remembered from childhood nightmares, full of animal carcasses, burning giraffes, and fleeing humans. This central contrast between the two exhibits was best illustrated by the visitor's experience of the, attra of the attractions themselves. In Belgetti's vision of a completely planned America, visitors were passively moved on a conveyor belt through the diorama, as they were fed an audio narration telling them of the glories of what they were witnessing, bringing to mind Henry Ford's invention of the assembly line. In Dali's vision of the unconscious, you would walk through the exhibit yourself, your eye not knowing where to look, snatches of audio descending from hidden speakers reciting poetry and incantations. If you, could, if you looked closely, you could even interpret one of Dali's tableaux as a commentary on the techno-auto utopia presented by Futurama. Christopher Columbus returns to the New World in a taxicab Cadillac chauffeured by a beautiful American woman while it rains inside the taxicab. This could be interpreted as Dali's Venus and the forces of love reigning on the parade of progress. Belgetti's, for his part, wasn't all cold functional logic. 
He was also willing to participate in the burlesque through his Crystal Lassie's novelty attraction near the Dream of Venus. In this exhibit, visitors could look through two-way mirrors and see naked girls reflected dozens of times in the glass. And what about the fair's theme of building the world of tomorrow? Both exhibits clearly had a different take on this. Balgetti's Futurama conformed to the theme of technological progress, which would bring about world peace. Dali, on the other hand, for sees the forces of love, sex, and death, and the primal fears of the cosmos as the building blocks of the past, present, and the future. In a sense, both visions were true. Belgetti's predicted that Americans would move out of the cities into the suburbs, and we did. He envisioned an interstate highway system that soon was authorized by President Eisenhower in 1957. He showed us a world where the automobile would remake the landscape, and it did. He designed cities with separate residential, commercial, and industrial districts, and this came true as well. In this world, working in middle classes would make enough money to lead comfortable lives with many luxuries, and to a certain extent, this has happened. Dali's vision was equally true in that regardless of technology, the primal forces within the human psyche would still rule. Technological progress did not bring eternal peace, but only furthered the means of violence and destruction. Dali knew that despite the onward march of technology, our lives would still in part be ruled by instinctive and irrational forces. Although Futurama may have appeared to some as a plug for ambitious road construction, the fact is that many of the ideas Gettys presented did make life better for most Americans. In addition to the economic rewards of greater efficiency, urban sprawl and suburbanization was a viable response to the increasing prevalence of slums, tenements, and overcrowded cities. And although many Americans were plainly confused by Dali's exhibition, many more were enraptured by it. The Dream of Venus, combined with Dali's earlier exhibit at the Levy Gallery and a later one at the Museum of Modern Art, helped popularize surrealism in America and helped to open up Americans' minds to modernist art and architecture in general. Both visions had their dark sides as well. By placing the car at the center of American life, Belgetti's predicted a future that was friendly to autos, but rather unfriendly to people. The results of this remaking of the American landscape would be people like Robert Moses constructing massive expressways and destroying historic neighborhoods and displacing whole communities in the process. The proliferation of an array of ugly strip malls, fast food restaurants, gas stations, and rest stops along every freeway. And of course, an endless stream of cars creating traffic and pollution and depleting precious natural resources. Belgetti's acknowledged this dark side himself when he wrote in his book The Magic Motorways that there were too many cars, and as a solution called for more buses, park-and-ride areas, carpooling, and subways. The dark side of Dali's popularizing of surrealism and modern art was that the movement became co-opted by advertising and popular culture, and soon sexual imagery became prevalent on every billboard, TV commercial, and magazine insert, minus the subtext and the subversive elements. Madison Avenue used sex to sell products and turned art into wallpaper. Dali, in his quest to be ever more provocative, became a caricature himself, eventually losing sight of his original goal of unleashing the unconscious and giving vent to automatic art. Surrealism, surrealism soon after dissolved as a movement. 
As the fair wrapped up the 1939 season, Europe was at war, and several countries that began the season with their own pavilions either ceased to exist or were now occupied by Nazi Germany. During the fair's 1940 season, the pavilions of Czechoslovakia, Belgium, Denmark, France, Luxembourg, Norway, and Poland still stood while the nations themselves had fallen. And yet, what the fair and the Futurama and the Dream of Venus exhibits represented would persist. Einstein summed this up nicely in his speech at the dedication of the Israeli pavilion, then known as Palestine. The World's Fair is in a way a reflection of mankind, but it projects the world of men like a wishful dream. Only the creative forces are on show, none of the sinister and destructive ones, which today more than ever jeopardize the happiness, the very existence of civilized harmony. Whoever has learned to appreciate and admire the positive side of man's aspirations is sure to be willing to protect, and if necessary, to fight with all his might in defense of what has been achieved. Although both exhibits were torn at down after the fair, you can still see images of Futurama in the official film of the exhibition, To New Horizons. The recent art book, Norman Valgetti's Designs America, also contains essays on Futurama as well as every other phase of Valgetti's career. You can see photographs of Dali's Dream of Venus exhibit in the book Salvador Dali's Dream of Venus, the surrealist funhouse from the 1939 World's Fair. You might also want to check out Lewis Mumford's The City, a fascinating film made for the fair which illustrates the populist utopian ideas of the new city. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Mike. Mike can be found on Twitter at HappyWanderer13. I am at Candle underscore ends. The music from DJ Chris Dub can be found on SoundCloud. The track is Theremin Talk. Well, before wrapping up the podcast, I will mention a concert I saw recently. I saw the Black Angels at the Magic Stick in Detroit. When trying to describe this band, I decided the best description I could come up with was what you wished all Jefferson Airplane songs sounded like after you first heard White Rabbit. So imagine my surprise when I saw that the vocals came not from a gray slick-like female, but from a bearded dude. Uh, the concert was great. I was a little distracted by the crowd. There was a mosh pit, a constant mosh pit going on throughout most of the songs. The uh, band had to had to ask things uh, people to can it a little bit, and there was a fight. Somebody had to be pulled out. Didn't seem quite what I expected from this modern psychedelic band to have a mosh pit and people jumping all over the place. But um, you know, you you get whatever whatever crowd turns up to the concert is is the crowd of people that want to hear the music. So so that was the experience. The uh, opening band was Elephant Stone, and they were pretty good, too. There was a really awesome electric sitar player. I guess it was a sitar, a standard sitar, but it was definitely amplified. Um, they were great, and for the encore of the Black Angels, the sitar player came out and jammed with them, which was really cool. Okay, we're going to wrap this episode up with a song. This is called Mnemonic Stones by me. Neil, a.k.a. Candle Ends. You can find all my original songs 
generally on Bandcamp. And thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you uh, would like to leave us a comment on iTunes, that would be nice too, because I don't really know how many people are listening. Release the spirit of the one.